Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores for movies, TV shows, and video games. I am, of course, Don, and I'm here once again along with my co-hosts, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. Oh, good morning. Good afternoon, lady and gentlemen. Well, today we have a very special episode of our podcast, and uh, for the first time ever, we are welcoming in a guest. We are proud to have writer and podcast host of the History of the 90s podcast, fellow Canadian Kathy Kanzora here today with us. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you very much. Hey, guys. Woot, woot, welcome. It's really awesome to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. If you haven't listened to Kathy on the History of the 90s podcast, when you finish listening to us, immediately subscribe to Kathy's show on whatever your podcast app of choice is and binge to your heart's content. It's a fantastic show. I'm a huge fan of it. I highly recommend uh, Kathy's recent episode on the X-Files. Also, there was a great series on 90s cults that I think was just fascinating. So definitely go ahead and uh, binge to your heart's content intent and uh, we're just really happy to have you here today Kathy. Thanks Don. So what we are doing today is all four of us are really well versed in the movies of the 90s. We thought that it would be only fitting to start up a classic old school debate on which 90s movie had the best soundtrack. So each of us have selected a 90s soundtrack that we think best epitomizes the decade and we are going to make our respective cases question the validity of our opponent's arguments and then vote for a winner in the second segment of our podcast. But to start off before we put the gloves on and start duking it out we thought we'd just have a friendly little discussion about the 90s and what made the decade so great so kathy i'm going to toss it over to you first if that's all right so obviously you're extremely well versed in the decade um what really kind of makes the 90s the decade that you wanted to talk about the most in your podcast well, for me, um, it was a formative time. I was a reporter in the 90s, so I covered a lot of big stories back in the day. And, you know, looking back, I just thought, man, a lot of crazy stuff happened in the 90s that uh, I think we need to revisit at this point because we've had some perspective. But overall, like sort of taking a, a wider view of it, I have to say it's really technology and the internet is what made everything just is so amazing in the 90s because it felt like we started in the stone ages like 1990 felt like the stone ages compared to by 1999 we were in the space age it was just so much change in such a short period of time and it impacted every aspect of society from you know from how you worked from how you watched tv to how you listened to music Everything changed in a short 10 years. And, you know, I, I was of that age where I was just starting out working and everything changed completely. I was in radio and, you know, we were doing typewriters and fax machines in 1990. And then by the end of the 90s, we had digital audio files and, you know, everything obviously was on computer and email. And it was just such a different, it felt like a whole different time period. So, and then, you know, everyone was impacted that way, whether you were a kid or an adult. It's just so much change in that time period. Anthony, what about your perspective on the 90s? Why so fascinated on the pop culture, the news, the whole thing about that decade? I am turning 40 this year. It's a pretty big milestone. And so from 1990 to 2000, I was 9 to 19. So those were pretty formative years for me. And Kathy, I think you hit it right on the nose. Like, I remember being in 1990, you know, going camping and 
being bare bones and there being nothing when we go and being very rustic and very old timey, quote unquote, (laughs) if you will. But then by 1999, I was graduating. I had seen The Matrix. The internet had allowed me to change my desktop to scream emojis. And so, yeah, like I think in just that small period of time, I was of an age that things did progress really fast. And I think it's allowed me to kind of navigate some of the quick changes that we experience in a day-to-day life now. But uh, I think there's also some really kitschy, amazing, fun stuff that came out of the 90s, both from television and movies. I think there was this golden age of movies, and especially soundtracks. Um, And plus, I just can't wait to drop a Beanie Babies reference. Ooh. Excellent. I think, Kathy, you did a really interesting episode on Beanie Babies and the the toys of the 90s, which was a fascinating discussion. Jason, how about yourself? Tell us about uh, your experience with the 90s, why it still kind of resonates with you, what ties you back to that decade, and why you want to continue to talk about it to this day. Oh, man, there's really so much the 90s represents for me. I started out being slightly older than YouTube. I was a freshman in high school starting out in the 90s. You know, I was dealing with coming from the world, as Kathy talked about technologically, uh, from having an electric typewriter as sort of my means for doing homework to working on papers at the computer lab during high school on like Macs and such, then taking some time after I finished high school to sort of like figure out my way in life. Then by the end of the 90s, deciding to go back to school, uh, just really trying to figure out, I mean, like there was so much going on in Chicago at that time. I mean, it was like, you know, a crazy time musically. It was a a time where gentrification in Chicago was like really exploding. There was so much going on. And like I said, I was really trying to figure out who I was. Um, You know, I went from a relatively uh, religiously ripped kind of lifestyle to like going sort of nah, I wouldn't say ape shit but you know like <laughs> <laughs> just really going in a different direction by the end of it so the 90s really were a lot to me um you know sort of figuring out what politics was all about sort of seeing uh the end of the Clinton era cringing at you know uh, the transition from him to Bush to everything that meant while I was in college after in the early 2000s it just so much. I think for me, I can absolutely agree with everything that's been said in regards to how that short period of time completely changed from 90 to 99 technologically. I was uh, coming into high school around the mid 90s. And then just seeing even that short period of time from how I was completing homework in high school to my first year of university in 2001, and realizing just how much of a significant change happened in such a short period of time, it, it absolutely kind of floors me to think about that period of time and, and think Thinking that there was a period within my life there where there was no sort of internet and utilizing that technology to then expand my nerddom to drift into message boards and communities online to start interacting with people who had all of the shared interests that I'd never experienced in my hometown. I was that cinephile who loved indie movies, who loved really avant-garde stuff. I was big into soundtracks and scores and that was there was no way I was going to be able to find anything like that in any of the music shops in my, my small hometown. So I was now able to utilize this newfound access to the internet to start exploring and delving even deeper. And it did help me, similar to to what everybody has been saying, kind of really understand who they were and, and how this decade was going to be impacting me moving forward. I think the other huge thing is, of course, the media and the pop culture that was produced in that era. I mean, I think 
when I think about the formative years of my life as a youth going into kind of early adulthood, going into university, the, the 90s generated just an amazing wealth of movies and TV shows and music that shaped me to who I am today. It still allows me to reminisce and, and the nostalgia factor is huge and anything that I listen to or access now. So I think that would be a good way to transition into just some of our favorite things from the 90s and some of the things that still make us think about that decade in such a, a great nostalgic way. The thing that I wanted to bring to the table today was I think the 90s is the last bastion of appointment television. And it had such a huge impact on the TV landscape. When we think about like TGIF, Must See Thursday on NBC, and we have just juggernaut shows coming out of those with things like Friends and Seinfeld. And we have the Family Matters and the Full Houses and uh, Step by Steps, those sorts of shows coming out in ways that you absolutely had to sit by your TV to go, go and access. Whereas now when we see something like WandaVision and there is that weekly sort of wait, it's almost even more enjoyable because it's that anticipation, that delayed gratification, and it's a harken back to an older time, which I think WandaVision is absolutely trying to do. The appointment TV of the 90s is just uh, unbelievable. It's finally here. NBC premiere Thursday. I'm blown away. You're blown, blown. Starting with a Friends moment you've been waiting for. Oh my God. Will Ross and Rachel get together? Friends. Can't tell you. Then Jonathan Silverman's The Single Guy. Must see TV. And you won't believe the big news on the premiere of Seinfeld. This is like Pearl Harbor, the Kennedy assassination. Then Leah Thompson is Caroline in the city, and the wait is over. The premiere of ER. Now that's must-see TV. NBC premiere Thursday next week. If somebody else wants to jump in, provide what they think is kind of one of those best pieces of uh, pop culture '90s stuff. Go right ahead. Well, I'll jump in here and uh, bring a female perspective for you guys. Something that. I love from the 90s was the rise in female singers, which I'm sure as a guy yes. you can also appreciate, but there really was an explosion of really edgy female singers. And of course, in Canada, it was all about Alanis Morissette. Loved, loved Jagged Little Pill. And that was 1995, I believe. And uh, But before that, even, or slightly after, actually, uh, Sarah McLaughlin, another wonderful Canadian singer, different kind of vibe, but she had the Lilith Fair, which I went to a couple of times and saw Dixie Chicks were even at Lilith Fair and Sheryl Crow and Dido. And I'm trying to remember some of it, Macy Gray. It was just, it was amazing. And it was such a great time for female singers. And then even our little... Um, Who's our little uh, singer from Napanee? Avril Lavigne. Lavigne. Yes! <laughs> Which was late, late, late 90s, right? I think early 2000s. Early but 2000s, yeah. Yeah, early 2000s. But also uh, another, you know, another bright light from uh, the female perspective. But and then in, in the UK as well, we had... Uh, Tori Amos, Dolores O'Riordan from Cranberries loved her as well. Veruca Salt. There were so many great female. And now, you know, now we see it too. But there, before that, there really was a dearth. Like it was mostly a male dominated, like especially in rock, it was very male dominated. So it was really great to have that rise in the female voice. 
I'll second that. I'm a huge fan of the Women in Songs CD collection yes. that came out oh in the 90s. Gosh. Come on. I actually found, uh, I think, album one or two uh, mm-hmm. a couple years ago, and I still pop it on. Um, but yes, I, I absolutely love the female uh, musician movement that happened in the 90s. In fact, I'm pretty sure I read uh, or I've read that Sarah McLaughlin started Lilith Fair because no concert promoter would independently feature a female artist on their own. It would wow. only be, and that was in the nineties. Like yeah. that was standard entertainment. Yep. Yeah, like yeah. that was a big step for Sarah McLaughlin to be like, no, I want female fronted musicians to lead this, yep. and I'm going to show you that it's going to be popular and it's going to make a lot of money, which it did. And I'm so happy she created that space. Um, again, framing it that you're like, that's not that long ago when a female fronted musician couldn't headline. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Progress is very slow in the world at times. Yes, and it is yeah. unbelievably frustrating. Yeah. And to look back on it as being, what, three decades ago, that was just not happening. And to see how much has changed. I mean, even in that shift from sort of the Alanises and the Sarahs and the Jan Ardens into what Avril Lavigne was doing and just that complete sort of running at such a young age for Avril as yep, well. Yep. I think it truly kind of changed the listener's perspective. And I'm, I'm sure that empowered just so many young girls and young women to to get into the industry or even just to, to celebrate their own womanhood and to believe that they could do such great things. Sure. I think it's absolutely mind-blowing what the 90s did in that regard i'll jump in here because listening to you all talk made me think of sort of three distinct movements that kind of happened in the 90s first going back to technology computers aside it made me think of like the music format wars because you know first it started out with cassettes Mm -hmm. um then cds became like the huge thing that you know happened pretty much at the beginning of the 90s. Then it sort of went into Laserdisc and Minidisc (laughs) and eventually DVDs, although I'm not sure if that was the end of the 90s or not. All those things kind of happened. Then, you know, like thinking about music, I would be horribly remiss. You know, I mean, for me, hip hop sort of figured out it's like it became mature uh, in the early, you know, in the 90s. It was a huge, huge thing for me, um, starting out from the Rock Hymns, the Gangstars, the all those artists that were kind of huge uh, in the beginning to sort of the, I guess what some would refer to sort of the Jiggy era by the end of the 90s in terms of like everybody talking about like excess and, you know, things that most people couldn't afford. Also, kind of peppered in between linking both of the music movements you talked about, and then what I was just describing is how important the music video was. Mm-hmm. Um, m- music videos sort of went from this sort of cutesy display of whatever was going on in the music to like these really well-produced affairs that like sometimes were like mini movies within the span of you know three four minutes. You know, all that stuff was pretty awesome to me. 
MTV was, I mean, when you think about early MTV with kind of Video Killed the Radio Star being kind of that kickoff, and then you see sort of the Dire Straits money for nothing, and it's just, this is the revolution of music videos. And then when the eight, when the 90s hit, I mean, yeah, it is exactly what you said, Jason. It's just the way that things were produced and seen as valid kind of mediums to put forward the artist and put forward the, the music and the message that you're trying to get across. Huge advances going on there. So perfect. Thank you very much for that. Does anybody else want to jump in? Any final thoughts about things from the 90s that, that really sort of made them think, c- continues to make you think, things that you definitely want to, to highlight? The only other thing I was going to say was it would be a disservice to not talk about like, because, you know, when we were talking about black exploitation a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. we were talking about how that sort of influenced black film in the 90s. So, I mean, I think that connection is really important because a lot of the films we talked about back in the 70s kind of paved the way for the sort of stories that happened at that time and were allowed to be produced, but not necessarily entirely in a positive way. So, you know, I definitely want to make that point. Yeah, what Jason said was much more poignant. I was just going to say pogs. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Can you explain pogs to me? Pogs are cardboard that are sold to children or were sold to children under the guise that they were cool. And collectible. (laughs) Yeah. And that was all about um, competition. It was like a new version of Jax. Like Mm. that's the whole uh, basis of it is that it was just a little disc of cardboard that had a cartoon on it and you had a metal one and it was just a reverse jacks and you tried to collect the pogs. Yeah, that's... Yeah, originally they were, I think it was a Hawaiian creation where they were the tops of milk bottles. Okay. There were these little cardboard discs on milk bottles and yeah... 90s for some odd reasons we started to get throwing star slammers and big metal pieces with big skulls on it and you had to stack them and hit them and if you flip them up you could gather the ones those were the ones you took so yeah jacks gotcha. is basically the, the way but it was for keeps kathy any final thoughts from you in regards to the the 90s as a decade someone mentioned about media and that's another big part of the 90s uh for me it was just the change in the way uh we covered news the 24 7 coverage of news and the news cycle that has practically eaten us alive now because you know the news cycle is so fast and it wasn't like that at the beginning of the 90s and by the end of the 90s it was you know we were starting to see what we have today which is you know just an incredibly fast news cycle that you don't get time to even absorb what's happening before you're moved on you move on to the next story and in in the early 90s mid 90s like oj simpson you know it it just it went on for months and months and months the same story whereas now it's like people have adhd when it comes to news like you're oh there was a big there was a big um earthquake in wherever and it's like okay next next story and you know you've moved on already because it's just the nature of it, it now so that was another big change and, and something, um, the way the news was covered in the 90s changed quite a bit from the beginning to the end. Kathy, since you were kind of in that that industry, I just yeah. want to ask you a quick question. Do you feel that the consumer of news and media in the 90s is still the same way today? Did you still find that there was that partisanship of you were looking for the thing that speaks to you? Or did you do you feel that the consumer was was more open-minded to kind of separate out or to, to look more deeply into stories because mm-hmm. there was only those sorts of limited channels in comparison to what we have now? Yeah, that's interesting. I think... There was a case that you chose to consume news in the 90s. It was a choice. Like you would pick up the newspaper. You would watch television news at six o'clock. 
But now the news comes to you when you're not looking for it. So it's always there. The ticker's running on the bottom of the TV or it's popping up in your Facebook feed or on your you know open screen on your computer and you're reading headlines and reading things, but not fully. So I, I, I think I feel like people um, knew more about less, mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense. Now yeah, everybody yeah. knows a little bit about everything, but mm-hmm. nothing really because they don't, they haven't read a full newspaper article in so long or a, a magazine. Oh my God, what is that? A magazine article that goes in depth on something. People don't make it down to the end of the story anymore. And you miss so many important facts and nuances in stories when you just are reading headlines. For sure. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you all for for chatting about that. That was fun. I'm sure we could spend another three episodes talking about the best parts of the 90s. We could spend mm-hmm. one entire episode just on Pogs alone. Yes. <laughs> I have some, I have some but, thoughts. But the question is, do we want to? Yeah. Exactly. That's the yeah. thing. But I think what we need to do is we need to uh, take a break. We need to get into our corners, put our gloves on, start ramping ourselves up or amping ourselves up listening to as much sort of 80s montage music as we can because it's time for the great 90s soundtrack debate. And we are going to get into that in our second segment right after this break. This is the part of the show when we tell you about another great podcast you should be listening to. Well, today we've got two. The first, of course, is Kathy's podcast, The History of the 90s. Kathy breaks down a 90s-themed topic every episode, ranging from the funny and cool to serious and tragic. Make sure you are subscribing to her podcast on your podcast app of choice and following her on Twitter at 1990s History. That's 1900S History. The other podcast you really need to be listening to is the Saturday Morning Podcast. We've just come out of our cartoon TV theme song bracket challenge, which featured a lot of great Saturday morning cartoon themes from the 80s and 90s. And Christopher J dives deeper into these classic shows on the Saturday Morning Podcast. Find their show on Twitter at SatMornPod, that's S-A-T-M-O-R-N-P-O-D, and find them as well on your podcast app of choice. Now it is time to debate, so let's get back to the episode. Everyone file into the gym in an orderly fashion because it is time for the great 90s debate to begin. So just to recap what we're doing, each of us selected one soundtrack from a 90s movie, and we're talking licensed music, not an instrumental score, that was set specifically in the decade. So that means that we're not selecting the soundtrack from, say, Days to Confused, which was a 90s movie, a fantastic soundtrack, but of course it depicted the 70s. So we are going to go one at a time, and we're going to present our opening arguments as to why our soundtrack should be selected as the epitome of the decade. We'll then open the floor to general discussions and hopefully a little trash talk here and there. Um, We'll question one another about their selections, and then we'll provide a quick closing argument and go into our vote. So I am going to kick it off with my opening argument for the soundtrack that I've brought up, which is to the 1995 Liv Tyler, Renee Zellweger cult classic Empire Records. Empire Records, featuring the music of Better Than Ezra, Gin Blossoms, Ape Hangers, Evan Dando, Toad the Wet Sprocket, and the Cranberries. What is wrong with you people? Rock and roll. Well, baby, I don't 
There are many ways to describe the 1995 movie Empire Records. You could call it a cult classic, an amazing Liv Tyler vehicle, uh, Renee Zellweger tuning up her vocal chops for future Oscar-caliber performances, and a massive box office flop. But I am going to add one more accolade to that list today, the greatest 90s soundtrack ever. Bear with me here. Empire Records was, in complete honesty, a huge disappointment when it was released. A budget just over $10 million, seeing a return of around 300000 That's all kinds of bad, but it is still memorable as a staple of the 90s movie scene because of one simple fact. The soundtrack was a banger. Variety said of the movie that it was a soundtrack in search of a movie. Rotten Tomato critics highlight the only redeeming quality of that movie is the soundtrack. And why is that, you may ask? It's because the soundtrack is amazing, of course, and specifically, it's of the 90s era. Despite the movie's dismal success, the soundtrack made it onto the record charts, eventually peaking at number 63. Oh sure, that isn't as successful as some of my fellow debaters' soundtracks, but remember that this movie was an unmitigated flop. It lost over $9.5 million, but yet the music still rang true for 90s music fans. Heck, the Wikipedia entry for the Empire Records soundtrack is longer than the plot description. To say that Empire Records is nothing without its 90s-laden soundtrack is absolutely correct. Now, what made the album a 90s hit? The individual acts that made up the soundtrack, that's what. And let's take a look at them. The lead track on that soundtrack is Till I Hear It From You by The Gin Blossoms. This song, created specifically for the Empire Records soundtrack, hit the charts and peaked at number 9. Elvis's Blue Suede Shoes peaked at number 9 as well. Eleanor Rigby only made it to number 11. This song, Till I Hear It From You, smack dab in the middle of the decade, resonated with the music-consuming public, driving them to buy up the soundtrack and made the Gin Blossoms a 90s darling. The band only managed one other hit after this, Follow You Down, but that song, again, still screams 90s rock. The Gin Blossoms are the sound of the 90s, and they are the only one of two groups I could think of to challenge them for that title. Speaking of that challenge, here's the group that I think could be considered as taking the crown from the Gin Blossoms as that 90s sound, and that's the Cranberries. The trilly, haunting vocals, the imagery, that Irish rock sound, Liar was illuminating to many who hadn't experienced the Cranberries yet. Other acts on the album are more 90s than Parachute Pants and Vanilla Ice's haircut. Toad the Wet Sprocket, Better Than Ezra, The Martinis, whose Wikipedia article is only four sentences long, with one of those sentences dedicated to their involvement in the Empire Records soundtrack. In closing, my fellow podcasters here may claim that their soundtracks are more 90s than Empire Records. To that, I say nay. My soundtrack is 90s and only 90s. Many of my artists never saw the end of that decade without the foul smell of failure and heartbreak. The Gin Blossoms were done just over a year after the Empire Records' success. Toad the Wet Sprocket, another casualty of the decade. Better than Ezra, peaking in this decade and not seeing another sniff at that same success ever again. Even our beloved Cranberries, a band we think made it through that barrier, last saw the single digits of a Billboard chart in 1999 never achieving the same kind of success as they did in that blissful time we call the mid-90s. Empire Records is my choice for the soundtrack of the 90s. Dude, were you using a teleprompter? That was a little too freaking polished, man. I, I am absolutely not that polished. 
you guys have been recording with me for too long to know I'm not that good. It's written down for me. <laughs> All right, Anthony, I believe you are up next. <clears throat> so, okay. Like, right now, for example, the Clueless soundtrack needs to come in first for the title of Best 90s Soundtrack. <laughs> But some people are all about, are all, what about my 90s soundtrack? But it's like when I had this album listening party for my Leather Daddy's birthday, right? I said RSVP because it was a sit-down listening party. But people came that, like, did not RSVP. So I was, like, totally bugging. I had to haul ass to the hosting living room, redistribute the albums, squish in extra seats, but by the end, it was kind of like the more the merrier. And so if this podcast could just get to the hosting living room, rearrange some albums, we could certainly party with the Clueless soundtrack. And in conclusion, might I <laughs> please remind you that it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Amber, uh, reply. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am here to make the case that the Clueless soundtrack, which people on the podcast can't see, but I have two versions of the album. One is the regular black pressing on vinyl, and the other is the tartan that Cher wears in the uh, movie. Anyway, I think Clueless is the best 90s soundtrack because when I'm looking for a 90s soundtrack, I'm looking for two genres of music. Grunge and hip-hop. Because as we, as Don, you just said, grunge was, I think, one of the well-known music genres in the 90s. But as Jason said before, I think hip-hop really came into it. And by the end of the 90s was really dominating the scene and would lead to the 2000s. And so when I'm looking for a soundtrack, I want both of those things in it. And Clueless Soundtrack has both of those in it and lots of other pop gems. And I'm excited to hear how your albums don't have that. <laughs> oh, gauntlet thrown. Anthony, you're a virgin that can't drive. Oh! <laughs> Jason, that was way hard. <laughs> This is going to tear our podcast team apart, but I love it. <laughs> Kathy, you are up with your selection. Okay. My selection is Reality Bites, the soundtrack from Reality Bites, a great movie. I'm uh, making this documentary about my friends. It's really about people who are trying to find their own identity without having any real role models or heroes or anything. And it seems like your friends would be perfect for that. I truly believe that if we can get two women on the Supreme Court, we can get at least one on you, Sam. I lost my job. Why'd you get a job at Burger Directed by Ben Stiller, which I didn't know at the time who Ben Stiller was, but now we do. So looking back, it's quite amazing. But okay, soundtrack. It's like an amazing mixtape or an amazing uh, Spotify playlist. 
It's got a little bit of everything for everybody, which is what I like, because I like all kinds of music. It has some songs from 90s alt rockers like Dinosaur Jr. and Juliana Hatfield, but it also has some fun 70s hits like My Sharona, which you will remember from the iconic gas station scene in Reality Bites, and it has some Squeeze and even U2, who is my personal fave. But it has one song that makes it the best 90s soundtrack it's really comes down to just one, the Lisa Loeb's Stay, I Missed You. It is the most 90s song of all time. You say I only hear what I want to And I still love that song to this day, so I don't want to hear anybody trashing it later. I love it. And if you listen to it now, it will instantly transport you back to the 90s. It's a magical thing, much like any Jewel song will do the same thing. Because Lisa has the sweetest voice. She's so cute. And her glasses were on point because I would wear those glasses today. They're so nice. And as a song on a soundtrack, her single went number one on the Billboard charts, which is amazing because she was an unsigned artist at the time. She did was not signed to a record label. So she was the first person to ever go number one on the Billboard charts who hadn't been signed to a record label. And uh, her, her backstory is quite cool because she was Ethan Hawke's uh, neighbor and friend. And I believe the Lemonheads, a very 90s band, uh, wasn't able to contribute a song to the to the uh, soundtrack and so they had an open spot and Ethan Hawke was like hey I know this girl she's a singer songwriter and they gave uh, her tape to Ben Stiller and there she was next thing you know she's selling millions of uh, records and uh, the soundtrack itself much because of her song and the other great songs that were on it went up to number 13 on the billboard charts and sold over a million copies and again I'll just in closing say that the reason it is the best 90s soundtrack is strictly because of Lisa Loeb. Strong argument. <laughs> Jason, let's close out the opening our opening statements here, and you can go with uh, your selection. Well, I'm definitely not going to have something quite as tightly scripted as Don as a uh, in-character as Anthony or just a really great summary uh, from Kathy. But what I will say uh, about Love Jones is that it's kind of an anomaly in a lot of different ways. It happened at the the tail end of the 90s. Uh, the film was actually, to my chagrin, reading an article about it a, a, a week or so ago, considered a flop too. Although not quite in the same way as Empire Records was considered a flop, but it I think it had cost somewhere in the range of three to five million and it brought in twelve million when it was all said and done. It definitely wasn't the Hollywood blockbuster that most of the other black films earlier on in the nineties were. Lorenz Tate, Nia Long, Lisa Nicole Carson, Isaiah Washington, and Bill Bellamy. I just want to ask you uh what type of underwear do you like? The reason I think it stands out, though, as a soundtrack is, well, first of all, kind of like what you were saying, Don, the soundtrack was actually so good that it caused the film to be carried again in theaters after the fact, which is, you know, kind of amazing. But again, just a testament to how strong the soundtrack was. But I think it also is somewhat political in nature, too. Up to that point, you know, we were talking before about what black exploitation was and sort of how it paved the way for uh, other films. 
But most of the films in the 90s depicted black folks in one particular way, coming from, you know, a relative sort of blight that was nothing but uh, tales of crime and misery. And folks may or may not have made it out of the film at the end uh, with their lives. That was pretty much, you know, like the the plot line of almost all the, the films, the black films from the 90s. Love Jones was radically different from anything like that. It was actually the first film that I can remember where the main characters were not particularly special. I mean, they they were just some creatives that happened to fall in love. You know, there was no there was no significant tragedy in terms of uh, loss of life or injury or anything like that. All the uh, supporting cast were decidedly regular. I mean, they were sort of a depiction of a burgeoning black middle class that heretofore had not been depicted at all and the music was an education of sorts one thing i think i'll say about the 90s and it may be a bit of a cop-out when we're trying to talk about what film soundtrack is the best we were really siloed in terms of music choice i don't think i you know to the extent that i listened to some rock back then it was pretty limited i mean it's a lot less limited now but I mean, were it not for the sampling techniques of a lot of the hip hop artists that I listened to back in the 90s, I wouldn't have had the impetus to sort of go back and crate dig amongst some of the the classic rock, the soft rock, some like all, all the things that were sampled. And then, you know, obviously drawing from like the music that was the 80s and sort of like the, you know, everybody is kind of welcomed. But with the Love Jones soundtrack, it was an education of sorts, kind of like Kathy's choice. It wasn't just focused strictly on the present, although it was very much part of the neo-soul movement. It had some great songs from none other than John Coltrane himself. Anybody who's listened to me in this podcast enough knows that I really do gush over jazz. fundamental and the way that he did uh his song uh in a sentimental mood it just was a classic love song type track to add into it the other thing that was interesting was sort of this jazzy blues thing that was added on the soundtrack in the form of jelly jelly i'm not a big blues person but i the way that that uh song was sung it made me a little bit more curious then the other things that I have to mention, it contained some really amazing artists. It had Lauren Hill coming right off of the miseducation of Lauren Hill with uh, her Sweetest Thing track. It had Escape, who was really big at the time. It had a remix of a song from Maxwell's debut album, which, you know, I mean, you kind of have to be under a rock to not at least know of who Maxwell is in terms of the soul that he was sort of, uh, that he brought to the table it it really did kind of span the the gamut. It had Dion Ferris in uh, Hopeless. It had Michelle Ndegeocello. It had some really great jazz. It had Groove Theory, which has one of, you know, the woman who went on to have a solo career that flew mainly under the radar, but in my opinion is one of the best voices, period, in Amel LaRue. It really encapsulated everything that was great and positive about Black music, in the 90s, but in a way that sort of 
open the door for people to explore other things uh, within sort of the soul, neo-soul, jazz, blues, all that genre. You know, dramatic pause, but I think for me, this is why Love Jones is the best soundtrack to come out of the 90s. Especially when I hurry home And you decided you can't stay around And I'm stuck it with the sound Four great opening statements. Let's drift into just the general discussion. If anybody's got any questions for any other of the hosts or any comments about soundtracks, by all means. I will say, Jason, in listening to uh, Love Jones, uh, I've had In the Rain stuck in my head for days and days and days now, and it's just been constant for me. So thank you very much for that. You're welcome. I, 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 there's there's so many jewels on there. It really is. I mean, and you know, I mean, we're we're all gonna have our case here, but I mean, it, it really is something that you know, especially if you want to chill. There's hardly anything better to listen to. In defense of my uh, soundtrack, there are a number of uh, 70s songs on there, but um, I think at the time they were important to people in the 90s um, who were of the age of the people in the movie, uh, the Gen Xers, myself, um, because those were the songs that, you know, we had heard as we were growing up in the 80s. So they uh, may not have been 90s songs per se, but I think they were important to us in the 90s, as would uh, songs today be looking back to, um, you know, someone right now in their 20s. They're probably like, oh, yeah, I remember when Nirvana came out and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, just wanted to explain why my Sharona would be <laughs> included in this soundtrack, because it does seem so out of place in the 90s, doesn't it? So so that's how we're going to pawn off a non-completely 90s soundtrack. <laughs> exactly. <there we. laughs> okay. No, see, there... <laughs> I, and maybe this is me wrong. Like, I'm actually going to be arguing for your soundtrack now. Okay. okay but tell me. I remember in the 90s specifically, there was a very 70s vibe. Mm -hmm. um, you had a lot of uh, nostalgic movies that were coming out. So, like, Days to Confused. And right. you had all these times when the boomers who were now parents of 90s kids, were trying to get, or they were trying to appeal to that. So I distinctly remember in the 90s, there being a lot of 70s inspirations. Uh, and I remember seeing bell bottoms. I remember seeing like long hair. And um, so those things I think I do associate with the 90s. And so I remember when I, I saw Reality Bites and it didn't really register with me. I think I was too young because I probably right. saw it when I was like 13. So I was like, oh my God, what are all these old people doing? <laughs> and, and, but I distinctly remember the My Sharona, like that, yeah. like Dona and Janine Garofalo. I still do that, yeah. like, little dance on yeah. my own. So, like, that scene definitely sat with me, even as a kid, that I was like, My Sharona's a really fun song. Well, yeah. And nostalgia, I think, goes in waves every 20 years, right? So yes. we're in the 90s nostalgia moment right now. Kids are wearing, the 90s um, inspired clothing and and the colors have all come back, mm -hmm. you know, the, the horribly, colors. the teal the green. And, and the yeah. like, yes. Yeah. Billie Eilish in her last video uh, was like, I wore that in the 90s. It was like yeah. this big thing that I was like, oh my God, I, it's finally happened. <laughs> so, so someone of that age now, you know, in 20 years is going to think that that was their, you know, they're going to conflate 90s with 2020. <laughs> but, so I think that's why a 90s movie, exactly, thank you for making my point, 
would have <laughs> 70s music because it was a big part of the 90s at the time because it was the people that were making the movie Ben Stiller would have grown up on 70s music probably and to, to be fair, Kathy, I, I have no problem with the inclusion of My Sharona in a, a 90s soundtrack. <laughs> After all, I had to look this up because I didn't know this until a few seconds ago. Innocent Mood was, uh, that was the, the Coltrane and Duke Ellington. That was 1962. And the other one, oh, Jelly Jelly, may have been equally as old, if not a wee bit older. I mean, I think it's more important the, the context it had within the movie. And as right. long as it was used appropriately, then, hey, it's game. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from both of you is that your arguments are for the best 90s soundtracks. They don't feature lots of 90s songs. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think that's it at all. I think I think the argument is that we feel free to include non-90s songs, but while still the soundtrack is mostly made up of 90s music. And unless you want to go with the best one which is absolutely one that's comprised of completely 90s music <laughs> and and really really big hits that are only within the 90s decade. And very homogenous 90s music, I might say too. <laughs> we're not here to argue the quality of the music that was put out in these soundtracks. It was we're arguing that they are the most 90s. Speaking of homogenous, the uh, Reality Bite soundtrack is pretty homogenous as well but there and the funny thing was there were songs played in the movie arrested development there was an arrested development song there was a salt and pepper song salt and pepper and um <laughs> they were not included in the soundtrack for whatever reason and then i believe Which there was the a 10th anniversary mm -hmm. edition released and it included some of those other songs that had been left off the first time around i think the arrested development song was on at least so which is kind of interesting that wasn't their best choice of you know selected for that soundtrack but you know it it is what it is uh, arrested development kind of had like a a huge spike and then a tremendous fall after that very first album so jason i want to ask you about your soundtrack and just how do you see this soundtrack influencing others because in listening to it just from from my like uneducated side of it like i had not heard of love jones before we kind of brought it up on the on the podcast here and then listening to the entire soundtrack it's like wow this is really great and it sounds like there was so much that continued to influence moving forward oh yeah i mean there was a lot of forward and back looking i mean I won't say that that soundtrack was the start of the whole neo-soul movement, but it was an important link in that chain, I think. You know, a lot of those artists went on to have tremendously successful, not stereotypical black music at that time, like kind of more niche and not with the heavy radio play of, say, like, you know, the, the Puffies or the Biggie uh, or, you know, like just everything that was sort of like in the late 90s going into 2000. But if you are a fan of neo-soul, I mean, you know, hearing like Kenny Lattimore, hearing like the, the Lauryn Hill, hearing all those artists and like in the Cassandra Wilson, who, you know, I mean, obviously has a pretty significant jazz career, like I think really kind of paved the way for sort of the alternative or what I guess became as we grew up uh, the adult urban contemporary sort of sound. Um, so I think it's extremely important in terms of what you know black music was shortly after the 90s and honestly what it is even now mm -hmm. anthony i want to talk to you about clueless here because i think you've got a pretty solid shot here because you've got some really outstanding very 90s artists here with people like no doubt with counting crows go into it a little bit more i want to hear some more arguments about why you think musically 
Clueless is 90s. Well, first of all, I really like that you framed it uh, as musically, because I can go off on a tangent on Clueless, which I will right now. (laughs) By all means. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think just to frame, for me, Clueless is the 90s soundtrack because of two main reasons. One, I think it does encompass the decade in uh, the middle of the decade. I think that's really the hardest thing to do is because this came out in 1995. So really at this point, we're only halfway through the decade. Um, So that would, I guess, be my only strike against the Clueless soundtrack is it doesn't encapsulate the second half. But I think it does kind of feature some beginning trends in music that you were starting to see um and even just starting out with the the opening track of kids in america which is a cover of an 80s song but done so well by the muffs that i actually didn't know this was a cover until like 10 years later So even just starting off with that, it is just such a kick. Um, And it pairs with the visual of the movie so well. And I think the reason for that is the director, Amy Heckerling. She uh, created uh, what I consider to be the first teen movie um, based on a soundtrack, which is Fast Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And Amy Heckerling, um, I think Cameron Crowe wrote that movie, but his claim to fame was that he inter- like infiltrated uh, high school to actually get the realistic dialogue, which really comes across in that movie. And Amy Heckerling did the same thing with Clueless. And I think in the same way that that dialogue and music fueled that movie, they did with she does with Clueless. Because, again, coming in from Kids in America and then just going into Just a Girl, that was such a huge song. And that was such a pivotal moment in... I think, 90s music culture. And to bring it back to, Kathy, what you were saying at the beginning of the 90s being a really focus on feminine and female voices within the music industry, uh, that No Doubt song is uh, a bit of an anthem, I would argue, of the 90s that I think to this day still a lot of people will just, you know, identify with it and kind of, they really like that song because it talks about feminism in a way that is still important today. I think that music is juxtaposed and challenged in this movie in a way that I think uh, I've said in the past, one of my favorite uh, genres of movies is women helping women. Because uh, a lot of narratives in uh, in pop culture will have uh, antagonist relationships with women, or their relationships are all defined by the men. And so again, in this movie, you have a, a movie that's entirely based on female friendship, and the characters and the plot are driven on what they're doing together. And the music is always in the scene behind it. So no matter what's happening, there's always a scene that has music referencing. And as it goes through, you have, you know, Radiohead and you have this Brit pop coming in at all the fun, catchy times. And then, you know, one of the characters in the movie, Ty, falls in love with somebody and Coolio's rolling with my homies is playing in the background when she gets smacked in the head with a clog. And, you know, that becomes her sentimental moment and her sentimental song and when she hears it. And so that music is carried on throughout the movie. And you keep on hearing these little songs that are throughout the movie that really drive the plot. But again, really represent the time so well. 
let's go down to Kathy here. What about the other songs listed on on that entire soundtrack? So you talked about the U2 track. Uh, so it's right. All I Want Is You. I mean, it's their fourth single from what, Rattle and Hum, I believe. And then you've got a Lenny Kravitz track. You've got Dinosaur Jr. You've got some other good ones there on the original pressing. So right. what about the other music there? What, what tells me that that's kind of the epitome of the decade? Well, I think it's the epitome of the decade when it comes to this particular vibe that the movie was giving us was this disaffected 20 something struggling to find work kind of movie. So I I think but but I got to be honest. It's all Lisa Loeb for me. The rest, <laughs> the rest of the songs, they were like filler for me. I gotta, I gotta admit. But they were all, they all represent like that, yeah, that alt kind of grungy coffee shop kind of sound that the movie was all about. But I do find it a little ironic, well, or a lot ironic, that the movie is really technically about not wanting to sell out. And it feels like the soundtrack was all about that, though, wasn't it? Because they recut a bunch of the the videos that were with some of the older songs and repackaged them and marketed them. And and it does give you a kind of not authentic kind of feeling about the movie when you're done with it. Oh, my God, I'm just totally sinking my soundtrack. No, no, no. But I think it's true. It's true. But I think with your focus on Lisa Loeb, I think it's it does get back to that that idea of of not selling out. You have this individual who's not a part of a label who's kind of just found specifically for the soundtrack who who brings this basically this sound that she will live with for the rest of her life she will always be associated with stay it's a huge hit the the glasses are like the rachel haircut of the music world it was something that a ton of people wanted and are still desiring to this day as you mentioned you would wear lisa Loeb glasses to this day and she's still wearing them so i think while the rest of your songs may not fit that not selling out aesthetic i think lisa Loeb, because she is the staple of that soundtrack absolutely encompasses that for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. And you know, with Lisa Loeb, I can I can almost picture her being on the show Friends. Like it yes. feels like you mentioned the Rachel the Rachel haircut. Like she just seems like she could have been Phoebe or, you know, sitting on the couch with the rest of them. And it, it just feels so nineties. Like she feels so nineties to me. But it is a good song too. Like it, it's a really Absolutely. nice song. And her singing, I, I it still gets me every time. I love it. And that video that is just it's it, so cute it's iconic and yeah i again i agree i think lisa Loeb's a great uh, songwriter i think she is so involved uh, she invokes so much of that 90s feel that indie coffee shop of like that's exactly who i think of of when i picture an artist who's kind of coming about in the 90s that was what the movie was supposed to be but then it ended up being a little bit and i think it's I hate to slam Ben Stiller, but it feels like maybe if someone else had have directed that, it might have been a different movie. Because the woman who wrote the um, the screenplay for it, I don't know her. Her name is, I looked it up just before the show, um, Helen uh, Childress, I believe her name is. I don't know what she's done since then. I should have checked. But it sounds like she really fell into the shadow of Ben Stiller. It became Ben Stiller's movie. And not you know she was um not given a lot of um credit and there was even recently i think at tribeca they did like a 20th anniversary and she wasn't even invited to what? the to the showing until 
Um, I believe the Atlantic or someone did an article on her and then she got an invitation afterwards to come That's to it. Yeah, awful. it was just like, I know, isn't it? And it was based on her, loosely based on she was a, you know, a, she had just graduated from college. She was in, in acting, I believe. And she wrote this screenplay, you know, loosely based on her experiences. And then she just kind of got pushed aside. And the whole scene with my Sharona is really a big defining part of the movie, especially like from an aesthetic point of view where they kind of zoom out from the parking lot and you look in and you see them all dancing in the gas station, right? Which a lot of people were like, oh, that this was Ben Stiller's vision. He was really great. It was completely written in the script that way. She wrote it. He got all the credit and she just... She was like, you know, I just didn't want to take away from his success. And like, she sounds like a really lovely person, but just I, it breaks your heart to know that oh, you yeah. know, a story, a story about her life. She didn't get credit for it being her life kind of thing. And, you know, it's kind of sad, but sidebar. Mm, I think that's an interesting point, though. And I think one thing that uh, and Jason, I think you talked about a little bit before with Love Jones and the concept of representation. Um, which again, like, as you were talking about, I've never seen Love Jones and I am really excited to watch it, um, based on not only the, the, the plot summary, um, I specifically like representation that deviates from stereotypical tropes. And I think what you were talking about and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there, there was like that stereotype of a lot of black representation in the 90s being gang based and a lot of violence based or like trauma based. And so like the fact that there is this movie that for me flew under the radar, which incidentally, like I love Nia Long. Like I'm a huge fan of her. And like, I remember her from Fresh Prince. She's Lisa. Um, but also I had a little bit of a crush on Lorenz Tate. Because I remember seeing him on an episode of Fresh Prince, and I was like, who is that handsome man? But not, I wasn't gay. I didn't know I was gay at the time, so I just remember being like, gee, he's fine. I want to be his friend. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, like, I just, I think with that notion, I think issues of representation in the 90s, I think there was some good and there was some bad. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I don't know, like with even, uh, specific to Love Jones, when you were talking about the representation, did that factor into any of the music that you were listening to or, oh. or how you kind of took on the soundtrack? Absolutely. I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> wow. It's like you, you put this little conversation on like a golf tee and like, I've got like, you know, whatever the appropriate iron is for this conversation, but no, I, it really was. I mean, you know, I watched all those other films and this uh, conversation I was reading, like from this LA Times article from like 2017, you know, the, the director and some of the, the main actors and actresses in the film were going through sort of their take on Love Jones. And, you know, one of the crazy things about that film is it really almost didn't get done precisely because it was so very different from sort of the main themes of the 90s and again this was just these were just like some black middle class creatives not exactly professionals but creatives that were trying to find their way and yeah i identified hugely with that because i was like these are the sort of people i want to be like this is the sort of relationship this is the love story i want to have eventually like you know this is i can relate to this and even you know even just from the the fact that it was centered well, not exactly centered, but I mean, spoken word was a huge part of that. That was like another thing that sort of jumped off in the, the 90s. And, you know, the way the soundtrack opened with the main poetry sets that Lorenz Tate 
and Nia Long did at the beginning and the end, it was just, it was really awesome. Cause like I went, you know, went to undergrad at the university of Illinois and, you know, shout out to the, the Nesbit uh, black house as it was, you know, kind of affectionately called, you know, because like the first few years, well, at least while I lived on campus was a lot of time was spent there listening to other students, just kind of doing their own poetry sets. And I think love Jones sort of, making that like an okay sort of thing to do was not completely responsible for that but it it really did shine a light on just the fact that you know there were other ways to be as a, a young black person now do they call you daughter to the spinning pulsar or maybe queen of ten thousand moons sister to the distant yet rising star is your name yemiya Hell no, it's got to be Oshun. Ooh. Well, let's leave it there. Great sort of general discussion. We'll get into our closing arguments, and then we will come down and vote. Uh, remember, you can't vote for yourself. And uh, Jason, if you want to go ahead, and uh, we'll go reverse order from the opening arguments, and uh, just provide a brief sort of closing as to why you think people should vote for Love Jones. So I'm going to start out by saying that all these soundtracks are awesome. They really are. Like, they're awesome in their own specific way. And which one you ultimately decide to go with here has a lot to do with what your tastes are in the first place. Having said that, I would say that Love Jones is awesome because to me, it is really timeless. The fact that it included things from, you know, jazz's kind of heyday into the present, uh, well, at least the present at that time, it's something that I can play now, like right now, and vibe to exactly the same way I did then. It it just it really has long-term appeal to me in a way that I I'll you know I'll say that most of the other soundtracks don't. I mean, I think that like, you know, the Lisa Lee like was the the standout for me like when I was listening to Kathy's uh choice. I think the one that I thought I would have the most difficult time with to be honest was Anthony's choice. There it really was kind of a a broad representation of everything that was the 90s at that time it kind of allowed folks to sort of choose their own adventure but kind of at the expense of all the other tracks on there so like you know if for example uh you weren't necessarily vibing with some of the rock on there like you know there are a couple songs that you may have may have appealed to you but then that's kind of it or vice versa if you know that was kind of your jam you would have been at a loss with you know, some of the other songs picked, but in terms of being representative, it was kind of a jack of all trades in terms of 90s songs. But, you know, the, the one thing I'll say to sort of elevate Love Jones over that is that, you know, it may have been a jack of all trades, but perhaps a master of none. So I'll just say that, you know, in Love Jones was pretty you know it, it, it's black music it is unapologetically black music and really nothing else the difference is i guess is that you know especially i feel like maybe it's not necessarily a, a renaissance that jazz is having or like sort of like a newfound appreciation now um i know that like when i hit the record stores like the jazz section even today like i happened to do that and it almost made me late but i wasn't is really sparse now like there's a lot of interest in the genre that and maybe it's because of vinyl being so popular um now you know after having kind of a death uh in the the 2000s 
it's one of those things that I just feel can be easily appreciated by anybody who loves sort of classic music. Some songs that charted for sure, a lot of it didn't, but it's just, it's really pleasant. So I think you guys should vote for Love Jones, but I also understand if you don't. Thank you, Jason. Kathy, we will go to you. Go ahead and provide your closing argument as to why we should be voting for Reality Bites as the epitome of 90s music. Well, I uh, would have to say um, Reality Bites overall is just a great mixed tape playlist that you can put on when you're working at home, which we're all doing right now, probably. And you'll be transported back to the 90s thanks to a number of songs, but in particular, Lisa Loeb. She will get you back to a time and a place when things were less complicated and and safer to live in, I think. So um, for that reason, and the fact that U2 is on there, I'm a big fan of U2. And I know some people these days aren't, but that's okay. I still am. And I love that song. So um, for those reasons, I would say you need to vote for Reality Bite soundtrack. Excellent. As we bump it back over to Anthony Cher Horowitz, um, <laughs> go ahead and provide your argument as to why Clueless should be the vote of choice here. Well, I think that Clueless, besides being, I think, one of the best 90s movies out there, is one of the best 90s movies out there because of the soundtrack. I think, as I argued, that there's so much of the uh, soundtrack is built into the movie. But like Jason was saying, I think the soundtrack has something for everyone. And I think because it is so broad, it can allow you to get those 90s hits in various different ways. And so besides just being totally, totally awesome and classic... Uh, I think the Clueless soundtrack really offers a fun listen on its own. It's really something that I put on, uh, again, uh, during my Craftoon Delights. I'll throw on the Clueless soundtrack and hearing people respond to songs that they re remember from the movie, but also kind of also jumping over and being like, oh, remember this song and remember that. And generating that discussion about nostalgia 90s talk. Um, which is what we're all about today. So that's why, in conclusion, it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. Thank you, Anthony. <laughs> so I will go last. I'm going to go off my teleprompter, if you will, and wing it. This whole process, of course, whenever we get into debates and ranking is arbitrary and reductive. It is exactly as you said, Jason. It's it's a movement for, for people who just want to have these fun discussions, hopefully fun discussions, and it's all about taste. But all that being said, I still think that Empire Records represents an era in music that simply had fun and enjoyment. I think there is really pleasant, easy listening stuff on that soundtrack. There's some great rock. There's some great music that, that really sort of can transport people back extremely quickly and extremely um, uh, happily. And I do think that with the, the unsuccess of the, of the movie and the success of the soundtrack, there's still that idea that empire records, the soundtrack itself is, is the reason why we still can, can remember that movie to this day. There's still that attachment to the soundtrack. There's still that attachment to the songs. And I really do think that it is a great representation of the decade. You can't be sad. 
Not on Rex Manning Day. <laughs> good call. Very good call. So let's put it to the vote. Um, go ahead and select one of the fellow podcasters here uh, whose album you want to put forward. Um, Anthony, let's go uh, ahead and start with you. Who do you want to vote for? My vote is going to be for Love Jones. Love Jones. Because I love love. <laughs> and <laughs> I am really interested to not only check out this movie, but listening to the soundtrack, I actually was impressed about how much I enjoyed and how much I wanted to kind of seek it out again. I think I was so familiar with Reality Bites. I'm so familiar with uh, Empire Records that listening to that, it was a, a different perspective that I don't think I really had. Um, and so I really appreciated that about the Love Jones soundtrack. And that's why my Excellent. vote is going for that. Excellent. Let's then jump down to Jason. Jason, who are you voting for? Well, this wasn't planned in advance, but I do have to kind of say that for me, the thing that sort of ticked a bunch of boxes and sort of made me most in my feels uh, listening to all three of your choices was the Clueless soundtrack. It was, it really did. I mean, it encapsulated a lot that I liked about the 90s and not necessarily just uh, like hip hop or soul. Having Just a Girl on there is kind of not fair just because of how Blockbuster no doubt was in its totality. And in a way, I kind of wish they had made a song specifically for the soundtrack. But I mean, that is such a mega hit. And I, I really do love a lot about No Doubt and, you know, obviously Gwen Stefani's solo career. Agreed. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the other songs that were uh, chosen for that soundtrack, like, I, I didn't necessarily vibe to them all, but I could appreciate a lot of them. Like, for me, especially given, like, what I was talking about with, like, sampling and whatnot, it, it made me sort of nostalgic for some of the bands that I've gravitated gravitated towards more recently like you know the yeses of the world the 10 cc's you know the fleetwood max the like i don't know it it really does have a lot for everybody and like while i will say you know and i said it when i was talking about it it maybe tries too hard to make everybody happy but i do think that that is something worth acknowledging because at least it cared so I will go next. So my vote uh, goes to the soundtrack that captured the the idea of the 90s in kind of the way that I was thinking. And I'm going to vote for Kathy's Reality Bite selection. Kathy, I think you captured everything extremely well in arguing the one song off that album argument. I think that's exactly what 90s CDs were to me. It was finding this, the album, buying it for one specific song. I remember owning the Rembrandt's disc because of the, the Friends theme song. I mean, people did it for Empire Records. Absolutely, people did it for Reality Bites. And I think considering that Lisa Loeb hit number one with that track, um, it makes complete sense that that song and that voice does embody the, the 90s the best. And I really do think that you argued the other the other argument or the other songs really well. You two, of course, huge in in that era. It's a fantastic song. The other tracks are are really great. Um, but I am going to vote for Reality Bites. So, Kathy, final vote. Who are you going for? This is the decider. I'm the I'm the kingmaker. Yeah, this is yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna go with Clueless. <laughs> Anthony, I loved your your arguments. Were all awesome. And it really is a great soundtrack. Every single song is good on there. And they are all very representative of the 90s. So it's a good thing they left off your favorite 80s song here. <laughs> but, um, 
and uh, it it really and it also does what a soundtrack should do it really you you can when you listen to it you can relive the movie you really can they're so perfectly intertwined that it it is just a perfect soundtrack Mm, I agree. There'll be no living with him now. Uh, no, yeah. right. <laughs> this is gonna go right to my head. Kathy, you get to leave after this episode. We've got to record with him for years and years now. Well, by a score of two to one to one to zero, we are saying that Clueless is the soundtrack that epitomizes the '90s generation. Uh, so, congratulations to Anthony, and congratulations to everybody. This was a really fun conversation. Yeah, that was I really just great. Really appreciate. Yeah. It. This was really really good. Yes, it was awesome. That is it for us for today's episode. We, of course, want to thank Kathy for being a part of this. Kathy, where can people find your podcast and you on social medias? Sure. The podcast is called History of the 90s, and we're on all of the uh, usual places, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And uh, you can also reach me on all social media for um, Twitter and Facebook. It's at 1990s History. And then on Instagram, it's that 90s podcast. So, um you know, have a listen, reach out. I'd love to hear from some of your listeners. And uh, it sounds like we share some of the same interests. Absolutely. Yes, it was yeah. it was the reason why I wanted to bring you on as our first guest. In listening to your podcast, there was a- absolutely a ton of overlap there. And I think with all of us being individuals of certain ages that, that really sort of were, were formed in the fires of the 90s, uh, I do think that it was great to have you on. And you really fit in extremely well. And hopefully there'll be a topic maybe sometime in, yeah. the, in the future. You'll come back and chat it to us, uh, sure. chat with us about love to and of course i want to thank my uh regular co-hosts here anthony and jason thank you again to you both for joining you're very welcome thank you yeah thank you this this was especially uh special and thank you kathy for joining us i I, you you joked about all of us having beards but it really is uh (laughs) nice to have a woman's perspective on this podcast uh nothing you know not nothing against uh my two co-hosts here but it is awfully male in here so (laughs) absolutely well it was a pleasure to bring in the female perspective excellent well thank you all for for participating in today's episode thank you to the listeners of course we want you to follow us on all of the social medias that you can find us we're on twitter and instagram at even the score pod you can go ahead and send us a uh, an email if you have any uh, topic uh, suggestions for us moving forward our email address is even the score podcast at uh, gmail.com and of course we want you to to subscribe to our podcast you can find us on all the platforms uh, apple podcast spotify google play uh, we're on spotify we're on uh, every Everything that you need to find us on Stitcher, uh, really just go ahead and find us, subscribe, rate and review. We'd love those five-star reviews. Share our episodes with your friends. And uh, we really just do appreciate all of the listener support that we've received so far. So from all of us here at the Even the Score podcast, thank you very much. And we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Can you explain Pogs to me?